So we're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today. Um, if you're new with us, we've been going through first and we're in a series on First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, and in these two letters, the guy who wrote them, the Apostle Paul, was a missionary, and he's writing to give Christians some instruction in living faithfully for the Lord as we await his return. And the whole idea was that these Christians were excited about the Lord's return, but some of them were maybe a little overzealous or maybe misunderstood uh, some things about the Lord's return that was causing them to live kind of wacky. And so Paul wrote these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, to help them to understand, like, hey, it matters how we live in the meantime, right? Like, we're excited about the Lord's coming, we're excited about the end times, and if you're a Christian, you should be looking forward to that. But it matters how we live in light of the Lord's return and our faithfulness now. And so we've called this series, In the Meantime. One of the great things about 1 Thessalonians is it's actually one of the most personal, personal, personable, and heartfelt letters in the entire New Testament. If you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And and Paul is saying that these people weren't just people that he ministered to, they were actually his friends. There's, there's a debate amongst pastors that, as to whether or not you can be friends with the people that you're shepherding. Like, Can you, as a pastor, actually be a friend of your congregants? And, and I know many pastors, especially old school pastors, who say, no, there's got to be a disconnect. You, you can't be friends with the people that you're trying to lead. And then on the other side, there are people of my generation, even younger generations, it's like, that's all you should be, is just be their friend. Right? You don't need to tell them that they're wrong or point out their sin or say that they're doing wrong things. You just need to be their friend. And Paul will say that the balance lies somewhere in the middle. He says, we were, we were there to share with you the gospel. Right? That's the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's also the full counsel of God's word. He says, we cared about you so much that we shared with you the gospel. But we did that in a context of loving, personal uh, familial friendship relationship. And so the Apostle Paul, both of those pieces were important. What we're going to talk about today from this text is having a heart for, for people and, and spiritually influencing other people and investing in people spiritually. So let me start by asking two series of questions that will get our hearts and minds thinking in that direction. The first series is this. Who are those people who have cared for you spiritually? Think about the people when, when you were a kid or you were a young adult or, or if you're older, like even the people who maybe led you to the Lord if you, if you were an adult when you came to know the Lord. Who, who are the people who have cared for you spiritually? Sunday school teachers, school teachers, parents, friends, other people. Who's invested in you from a spiritual perspective? Who are, who are the people who have sat across the table with you and invested in you? The people that you can call and ask your spiritual questions? Who's looked out for your spiritual interest? Who are those people that you know they have your best interest in mind? Who are the people who have spiritually protected you or admonished you? When your life is going off a cliff, when you're making poor decisions, when you're doing things that you know that God's Word said you ought not to, who's the person who's been bold enough to look at you and say, hey, this isn't okay. You're going to damage yourself. You're damaging other people. That'll give us some idea as to the people that we'll be talking about in this text. The, the second set of questions then, conversely, is this. 
Who do you care about spiritually? Parents, that's especially like our kids, right? You care about your spouse. Maybe you care and love your, your grandkids spiritually, and you care about their spiritual life and their spiritual growth and their future. Who are the people that you are spiritually investing in right now? Because God's called Christians to invest in each other spiritually. Whose spiritual protection or spiritual future are you concerned about? So all of those questions start to drive at this heart for people. And Paul's going to teach us in our text today, in, in chapter 2, verse 17 and following, he's going to talk to us about what it means to have a heart for people and what does it look like to have a heart for people. Because in good gospel ministry, you have to have both. You've got to have the gospel and the truth of Scripture in the context of loving, heartfelt relationship. And Paul put those together, and we want to do the same. So in chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 20, we're going to see that a heart for people is an investment worth making. If you're taking notes, a heart for people is an investment worth making. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, and verse 17 says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. You may know the story, I won't tell it all, but in Acts 16 and Acts 17, the Holy Spirit tells Paul that he's done ministering where he was ministering and he's going to go to Macedonia. So he goes to the church in Philippi, starts a church there, then moves along to Thessalonica and starts a church in Thessalonica. But he's only there for about three or four weeks in that time, we see great gospel ministry, like people come to know Jesus and grow in their faith in just that short period of time. But prematurely, as is usually the case, the gospel, when the gospel comes to a culture, upheaval happens. Paul gets run out of town, and he has to move on to Berea and Athens. And so Paul's down the road a, a good ways, and he got pulled away from these people. He wanted to do ministry. He loved them, cared about them, and wanted to minister to them, but he's been pulled away from them. And he's now in a place where he can't sit across the table and talk to him. He can't go over to their house and drink a cup of coffee, Turkish coffee, of course, but he can't drink a cup of coffee and talk and have ministry and just be in their presence. And he says that that's causing him hardship. The term torn away is an interesting term. We have two words there that say torn away, but if you're looking at the original language in Greek, it's actually a, where we get the word orphan. It's like a transliteration of where we get the word orphan. And the idea in that culture, we think of an orphan where a child is, is given up, an orphan, and loses the parent. But in that culture, they would also say that a parent could be orphaned, that a parent could lose the child, and then in that way be orphaned. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, he says, I'm not like a father without my children. I'm a dad that's been torn away from my kids. If you've been in that scenario where you've been pulled away from your child, even if it's just for a season, it's a day, it's a week. Some of you have been on deployment. You've had to leave your children, leave your family and go away and, and you're not able to be with them. You get an idea of what Paul's feeling in that moment. He's like, we didn't want to go, but we were torn away. He says, we were torn away for a short time in person, but not in heart. And that in heart is a really important idea because I want you to know that true ministry means giving your heart to people. When I study God's Word, and I spend time throughout the course of the week digging into the text and thinking about the text, I'm not just thinking about the text. 
you're on my mind. The people in this church are on my mind and on my heart. When Lauren prepares the things that he's preparing to teach over there in, in the workshop time, we're not just thinking about truth, we're thinking about how truth impacts people. When we spend time with people, when you spend time with people, you're giving your heart and your life to them. And Paul says that that's part of what he was doing. He says that's the investment. But we want to make sure that we realize that, that ministry isn't just teaching, it's not just preaching, it's not just proclaiming, it's not just telling people things. It is those things, but it is those things in the context of like heartfelt spiritual concern and care. And Paul says, I was torn away in person, not in heart. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say there, we desire to see you over FaceTime. We desire to see you in a Zoom meeting. We desire to see you in a virtual online context, right? I'm pretty sure that if Paul wanted to in his day, he could have figured out Zoom, right? Through the Holy Spirit. Okay, maybe not. That's a stretch. But here's the interesting thing. In that day, there were ways of being disconnected. In our day, there are so many more opportunities to be disconnected. Many have said, sociologists and people smarter than me have done studies on this and talking about how we're more connected than ever before, but we're more disconnected than ever before. You've heard these studies? Because we can connect to people. I can text somebody and, and, and have a conversation with them. My parents live on the East Coast. I can grab my phone, push one button, and I'm talking to my mom, quote, face to face. We're more connected than ever before, yet at the same time, we're more disconnected than ever before. Truth test time. How many of you would rather text somebody than actually talk on the phone? Come on, let's see them. Don't lie. Some of you are lying right now. Especially you teenagers. I've seen you work. I know how it is, right? You see the phone call and you're like, why don't they just text me? Then I can do what I really want to do and respond to them. If I pick this up, that's 20 minutes out of my day, right? Oh, that person, that's, that's going to be 45 minutes. Not cool, right? So we can be more connected Oh, I saw what they were doing. I saw their Facebook account. I know all about their lives. I know their struggles and their hurts and their pains and their fears because I follow them on Facebook and Instagram. No, right? We can have this false sense of connectedness without ever really connecting with people. We can think that we're very connected to people without ever really connecting with people. And Paul says, I was longing to see you face to face. Because there's something about a ministry of presence that can't happen in any other context. No matter how great technology advances, right? I heard of a church that was, they were going multi-site, multi-campus, and they were going to do like one pastor, and he would preach live in one location, and then they would put it on the screens in different locations. But they wanted to step their game up and go to the next level. So they were actually going to project a hologram of the pastor on the screen. I'm not lying. You can, you can check it out. It's a big church, Right? Like, it's still not there, right? If I'm up here right now and somebody says, I say something really dumb, like in the first service, I said I believe in abortion. I don't believe in abortion. I just forgot to put the don't before it. But a couple of people come up to me afterwards. Like, I'm live. If I say I believe in abortion, Jim Farron can pull out his handgun and just shoot me right here because I'm live, right? Amen. And I would thank him for it later, right? Because I'm live. But there are things about being live that just can't happen in virtual context. And that's not just about gathered church. I love the fact that I can talk with Grandma Kay. 
2,500, 3,000 miles away that we can do that. But it means nothing in comparison to her getting on a plane and flying here and then we get to run and hug and do the things and be together and just be in each other's presence. One of the ways that we spiritually invest in people is called a ministry of presence. And that's a ministry that any Christian can do. A ministry of presence is walking up to someone and saying, how, how are you doing? And then actually pushing pause in your life and listening to them. Right? God gave us two really amazing instruments for ministry. You ready? One, two. Right? Amazing instruments for ministry. Sometimes these instruments for ministry are better than this instrument for ministry. Amen? Because sometimes people just need to listen. Somebody need to get, they need to get some stuff off their chest. They just need you to sit across the table and listen to them for a while. That's a ministry of presence. Paul desired that. It's interesting that he's writing a New Testament letter, and he's saying it's not just about letters. It's not just about text. It's not even just about phone calls, being together with people. Maybe one application that you walk away with today, is there somebody I need to sit across the table from? I have great news. It's fall. That means it's pumpkin spice latte season. Can I get an amen? You're clapping earlier. You should clap for that too. All right, there you go. Easy. You clap more for the latte than for Jesus. Not good. Offer to buy someone a pumpkin spice latte, take out a loan if you're going to Starbucks, and then take them and go buy him a latte and talk to him and spend some time just listening and talking. My hope throughout the course of today is that God lays somebody on your heart that could use your ministry in their life, that maybe could use your listening ears, and that there'd be a willingness to invest. And maybe you're here today, conversely, and you need somebody to do that for you, and my hope would be that somebody would lay you on someone else's heart today, that God would lay you on someone else's heart, and you'd be able to do just that very thing, because that's what we need. We need a ministry of presence. Verse 18 Says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He said, I wanted to see you. I wanted to come to you. Some of Paul's detractors were there, probably there with the Thessalonians, saying, oh, see, Paul was here, and he ministered to you, and then the going got tough, and he just took off, and now he's nowhere to be found. And Paul's saying, no, I, I really want to be with you. If you follow the account in Acts 17, you know that there was kind of a big upheaval that happened, and people were dragged into court. Some believe that this hindering is that, that actually legislation was passed or there was something uh, that said that Paul wasn't allowed to come back into the town. So he had to send Timothy in, into the city because he was actually banned. Interestingly enough, that word hindered, it says, I, Paul, wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. That idea was used in ancient contexts outside of the New Testament of, of soldiers would be going into battle. And if one army wanted to hinder the other army from advancing, they would go and they would just tear up the road. They would destroy the road. Roman roads were very important in that day for travel, especially for warfare. So they would destroy the road so then the army couldn't advance. That's what Paul is saying that Satan did to him. And here's what the enemy wants to do today. The enemy wants to hinder relationships. You see, Paul wanted to go to them to have a ministry of presence. He wanted to go to them in order to be present with them. And Satan hindered that way. We're not sure exactly how. But what I do know is today, 
that Satan wants to hinder relationships. Great things happen in a Puyallup Community Baptist Church. Kitchen looks great. Bathrooms looking greater every day. We'll have a men's bathroom before long. And then we're going to have to let the ladies use that one while they remodel the ladies' bathroom. So sorry, fellas, porta potties through the winter. Oh, that's going to be bad. But great things are happening. But the greatest things that are happening are relationships between people. And when I see people connecting with each other, hanging out together, uh, growing together in relationships, you know, spiritual relationships with each other, that's the most important stuff. But let me tell you something, church. You know where Satan attacks growing churches? It's not in the building projects. The building project, projects just become the means. But it's, it's the relationships, Right? Like if the enemy is going to attack and going to hinder, it's going to be in the hindering of relationships. And here, here's, here's one of the ways that that plays out. We talked last year about you know, going from one service to two services, and we did that so that we could have enough space to put everybody in. And we're, we're averaging between 300 and 325 people a week, kids included, right? So we can't fit in one space. And we desire to continue the building project. We've got plans in at the city so we can open this thing up and maybe fit some more people in here. But the biggest reason that we were concerned about going to double services wasn't that I'd have to yell twice, right? The first service is a warm-up, and then you guys just get the like, full blast. You're like, I'm coming to the first service next week. But it's because we don't want relationships to be hindered. Relationships with each other, like spiritual strengthening relationships are what this thing is built on. And we don't want to see those things being hindered because we know that the enemy wants to tear relationships apart. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, What is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before the Lord at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. As the apostle says, like, we were torn away from you. We desired to see you face to face. So we wanted to come, but Satan hindered us. He said, Our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting is you. Now, in that there were a couple different kinds of crowns that were worn, right? There was the royal crown that signified royalty. Someone's a king, someone's a crown prince, whatever it is, that there was that crown, that diadem that they would wear that would show that. This is a different kind of crown that's spoken of here. This is the, the laurel wreath of victory. This is what they would put on the Olympian's head when they won and they stand, stood in first place. They would put that crown saying, you've won You've been victorious. You think of an Olympian with a, today with a gold medal. Paul's drawing that analogy when he says, you are our glory, our joy, our crown, our hope, our joy, or our crown of boasting before the Lord. Here's what he's saying, that investing in people is an eternal win. Okay? He doesn't say that the building project was his crown of glory. Paul didn't say, like, one day they're going to take and they're going to put these maps in the back of the Bible of all the amazing trips I took and all those trips, that's my crown of boasting. Look, God, look at all the trips I took for you. Isn't it amazing? I got so many airline miles. Really cool. And he was going to boat. You know, Paul is saying that when he stands before the Lord, at his coming there, by the way, that's the word parousia. We're going to see that show up several times. It's been referring referring to the second coming of the Lord. And that's again where Paul puts in, just like we've seen every week, he puts in this end times motif. 
and over and over again because Paul's saying, when the Lord returns at the second coming, at the parousia, when the Lord returns and I stand before him, the thing that I'm going to boast about, the thing that I'm going to be victorious, that's going to show my spiritual victory is the investments that I've made in people, the spiritual investments that I've made. Investing in people is an eternal win. I read a commentary this week and it gave an illustration and it struck home because I was a youth pastor for 12 years and I thought this is really true. So when I was a youth pastor, we would take kids on events and activities. We'd take kids to camp, we'd take kids to retreats and other things like that. Back when I was young, I loved doing that stuff. That was great. Now I love other people to do it. But one of the main goals when we would take a, take a group of kids to camp, we had those 15 passenger vans that are illegal now. But we would stuff them full of kids, you know, 15, 20, 25 kids under the seats, wherever you could, you could find them. And we'd put the kids in the vans and we'd take off for camp. And, and my primary goal and objective was that when we pulled back into the church a week later, that those vans would pull in and kids would come spilling and piling out along with all their goods and the smells that were associated with it. And I could pass them off to their parents and say, here they are in one piece safe. They're like, what about spiritual? Yeah, spiritual too. Right, more spiritual. But safe and in one piece, right? That at the beginning of the week, the parents had said, here's my child. I'm entrusting them to you. Take them and do with them as you please. (laughs) Please bring them back better than I'm giving them (laughs) to you. And I'd put them in the van and then we'd take off. And I'd been entrusted with those students. And that the goal was to bring them back and present them to the parents and be able to say, see, I didn't kill your kid. They're even a little more spiritual than when they got in the van and smell worse. But that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He says, one day the Lord's going to return and I'm going to say, Father, your children, I've invested and I've invested hard and I've invested well and here are your children. This is my joy. This is my crown of boasting. And church, I want each of you to know that in investing in people is an eternal win. And we all have different ways of investing in people. Some of you are amazing listeners. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are very, uh, what's the word? Empathetic, I think. I'm not sure what it means. But some of you have like feelings and mercy and you really care about people and you can sit and talk and people just feel better if you have the opportunity to invest in people. And so again, I would challenge you that a heart for people is an investment worth making. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we'll see though that a heart for people can always expect hardship. A heart for people can always expect hardship. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. I'll tell you about Timothy. It's been fun over the last couple of weeks. I've been just meeting together with some young adult guys, uh, some young married guys, and we've been studying the first Timothy and the life of Timothy and we just did some uh, background research on Timothy. What a cool uh, New Testament character. I challenge you maybe to do some study on your own. But Timothy's background was interesting because he, he had a, a Jewish mother, but he had a Greek father. 
And most likely he grew up religiously like kind of confused because mom's going one direction, dad's going a different direction. Which direction do I go? Because of how lineage worked that in, in that day, he would have followed along with mom. But there were some very specific markers that didn't exist that, that showed that he went along more with dad. And, and it seems to indicate that there was some spiritual confusion. But what we do know through 2 Timothy is that his grandmother and his mother had become Christians and that they actually raised him in the Christian faith. Most believe that on Paul's first missionary journey that Timothy and his mother and his grandmother accepted Christ and that between the first and second missionary journey in those years, Timothy actually grew in his faith. That somehow there were people, we don't know who they are, but there were people who actually uh, mentored Timothy and helped him to grow and taught him the scripture and taught him the Christian life. Maybe it was his mother and grandmother. Maybe there were others involved as well. But that by the time Paul comes back around to where they lived in his second missionary journey, people are saying, hey, you should meet this guy, Timothy, because his character is really great and he'd be a great asset for your team. Paul meets Timothy, invites Timothy to come along. And throughout the course of most of Paul's letters, you hear things about Timothy. He's called my true child in the faith, my beloved son in the faith. He's called things here like our partner and co-worker. And that Paul had a Timothy that he at this point entrusted to say, I can't go back to the place where I want to go and see these people. But the next best thing is this man that I've invested in, the man that I have spiritually uh, mentored, and I'm going to send him back. Timothy goes back to establish and to exhort that these people needed some strengthening, that they were going through difficulties, that it wasn't easy, as we'll see in a moment. And they needed some strengthening, some buttressing of their faith. And look what Paul did. Paul sent a letter that we call 1 Thessalonians. But before he did that, he sent Timothy. So what happened is Paul sent Timothy. Paul's in Athens. He sends Timothy back to get a report to see how they're doing. And then Timothy comes back and then Paul writes about it. But Paul sent a person. Here's the point. It takes people to help people. It takes people to help people. As I said, as we continue to have more and more people here at church, two pastors, there's more people to care for than what we have. The ability for two pastors, shepherd, to care for. That it takes people to help people. What we need is some more Timothys, more female versions of Timothy, not as pastors, not as elders, but just as people helping people. See, before Timothy was a pastor, before he was in the great city of Ephesus and doing all the things that he was doing there that First and Second Timothy talk about, he was just a guy being faithful, and he went along with Paul, and when Paul needed him to, he went and he encouraged other people. In that way, both men and women can follow that example. That what we need is people helping people. We need that here at our church. We need you to identify somebody that could use a pumpkin spice latte. Somebody who could, could use a word of encouragement. Could use a friend. Because it takes people to help people. Verses 3 and 4. See how things get tough. It says... He sent Timothy to establish and exhort them in the faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. 
For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it had come to pass, and just as you know. Here's the idea of these verses, that when you have a heart for people, you must anticipate spiritual affliction. We must anticipate spiritual hardship. I want you to look carefully at how Paul phrases this. He says, he sent Timothy that no one would be moved by these afflictions. No one would be pulled off task by these afflictions. He says, you yourselves know that we were destined for this. In other words, this was planned ahead of time. This was always going to happen. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. As your pastor, part of my job is to say these words, it ain't going to be easy, right? It ain't going to be easy. Paul was talking to a group of people in the Thessalonians and really all the people that Paul talked to in that day, in that world. See, there's always a cultural narrative. The cultural narrative in Paul's day was that as a society, we work together for a society, for the common good of society. There's this great empire called Rome, and they're keeping everyone protected, and we're all going to keep them happy so that they'll keep us protected. And what Rome says, we'll do. So if Rome says that we worship the emperor as God, then collectively we worship the emperor as God. If Rome, because Greece did it before them, and, and then they picked up on it, if Rome says we just take everybody's gods and we put them into a big pot, and if this god is the god of fertility, we worship them, and if this god is the god of crops, we'll worship them, and if this god is the god of great weather, we'll worship them, and we'll put all of those gods together and formulate this polytheism, and we'll worship the emperor, and we'll worship false gods. And the cultural narrative said that we all do what is, quote, best for society. We all do the things that are going to promote peace and prosperity, etc., etc. And our family does that, and the fathers lead the family toward doing that. And as everybody does that, then things go well. That's the cultural narrative. That's the, that's the cultural stream where everybody's going in the same direction. When someone in the first century became a Christian, they made a choice to turn around in that stream and to swim completely in the opposite direction. Because rather than polytheism, and we'll worship all of these different gods, and your God can get thrown into our pot, they said, no, there's only one God. And instead of all different pluralistic truths, they said there's only one truth. And instead of we have to appease the wrath of the gods, and if we all work together and we appease the wrath of the gods, then our crops will grow and our society will be great and everything will be okay, and we all just kind of work together, and then everybody got to define it together, they said, no, there's one God, and he's set the rules, and there's one God, and I'm not him, and there's one God, and he says that my relationship with him has been broken because of this thing called sin. And so when they chose to follow God, when they called Jesus the Son of God, you know that that was directly disparaging to the cultural narrative because there was already a son of the gods that was the emperor so when they called jesus the son of god they were going diametrically opposed to the cultural narrative of their day when they took communion you know what people said about them they're cannibals people said that christians were both too religious and not religious enough and what happened was is that when somebody in that day chose to become a Christian, rather than just continuing to go downstream just like everybody else, they were turning and swimming upstream. 
Church, that's exactly where we're at right now. Right? We got to live for, well, people, Christians got to live for close to a couple thousand years in what we call Christendom. Where it was kind of like cool to be a Christian, even if you weren't. We're no longer there, especially not in the Pacific Northwest. There are some places that you can still go in the country that are maybe a little bit like that. By the way, they're changing rapidly, but we don't have that luxury in the Pacific Northwest. The cultural narrative, as I've said before, is you can believe whatever you want. You just can't believe it's right and everybody else is wrong, right? When you say that I believe that God gets to define marriage and not me and my feelings, you just turned around and started swimming against the cultural narrative. When you say that God gets to define the beginning and the origin of life and not me and my feelings and not what I think that I interpret science to say, you just turned around and started swimming upstream. All of these different things that we face in our culture is just going against the cultural narrative. Why would we be surprised that somehow there's affliction, that somehow there's hardship? Peter says it like this when he's writing to a group of people that are facing some pretty intense persecution. We preached on this series and I preached on this text, but it says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's like, don't be shocked, right? When you go to work and you say, I believe that life begins at conception and that I don't have the right to decide what that is. That I know it's your body, but it's God's design. You say that? You just went against the culture and narrative. Don't be all shocked when people don't like you, right? When I stand for certain cultural values and understanding of marriage, in a couple weeks, when we start to talk appropriately, not in a sermon context, but I'll just give you a little heads up, there are things that you need to know that are happening in Puyallup politically, and I feel like it's our job to help you to understand some of that, and I'm going to tell you about it. Not everybody gets excited about that kind of stuff, but I'm just tired of the stream going and going and going and going, and Christians are just kind of like, what are we supposed to do here? We're supposed to turn around and we're supposed to swim against the stream. We have a petition. It's out in the uh, lobby over here. Luis gave it to us just a few weeks ago, and I completely believe with what it stands for. And it was interesting because I just sat it out there and then I forgot to like talk about it. And there's two and a half pages full of your signature saying, yes, we're going to stand for this thing because it's in here. And yes, it's different than the cultural narrative, right? It's different than the cultural narrative when my, where, where a kid can go at 13, 14, 15 years old and make the most consequential decisions of their entire life and a parent can't even know about it. You don't get to steal parents' rights. And Christians just stand around and don't say anything about it. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you because you stood up for God's design versus what culture says that everybody should just believe and we all need to get along together. Those are the kind of things that this text is talking about. It's interesting. He says... In verse 4, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. We talk about hard things in the Christian life, but sometimes I'm like, do we really like get what that looks like for us in the 21st century? 
So I've, I found a list in a commentary I was reading this week, and I think these are some of the things. This is the first time I've seen like a list of hypothetical situations that maybe helps us wrap our minds around what this affliction, what this hardship, when I choose to swim against the cultural narrative, when I choose to swim upstream, what might be the consequences? So here are a few. An honest employee is fired for disrupting a company's plans to scam customers or for blowing the whistle on corruption and fraud. A law enforcement officer is ostracized and pushed out of line for promotion by her fellow officers because she refuses to lie in order to cover up misconduct by another officer. A college student, the only Christian in her family, is excluded from family activities because after her graduation, she disappoints and embarrasses her family by joining a mission organization working in the inner city rather than taking a good job. A high school student experiences hostility in taking a stand in an environment where social status and standing is heavily dependent on the extent to which one uses alcohol and drugs or is sexually active. A family refuses to buy into the consumer mentality of our culture and thereby they're implicitly challenging those who do they're rejected by neighbors and friends. Persons or groups who insist that as a society we do what is right and just as defined by the Bible rather than merely what is legal or profitable then experience hostility. A person whose consistent pro-life ethic includes opposition to abortion finds himself or herself as a persecuted minority. Welcome to the cultural narrative. Welcome to the river. Welcome to the stream that we're supposed to swim, not with, but against. And the really interesting thing is that in, in I know what many of us are thinking, right? In a lot of churches, in a lot of like religious ideologies, it's like, wait a minute, following Jesus is going to make your life better. It's hard to swim upstream. I like to swim downstream. I watched a little video this week and it was like these professional swimmers. And they, they had one of those lap pools or whatever, you know, like the treadmill pools. But they had set it to like strength of a river. And these professional swimmers could not swim upstream. Some of you probably saw it on social media. I thought, what a picture. That's the picture of what's going on right now in our culture, man. And the problem is, is that for so many people, the Christians are like, but life is supposed to be easier. Following Jesus is supposed to be easy. And so you know what you do? Instead of following, and following what Scripture says and swimming upstream, we just redefine Scripture so we can swim downstream and still think we're following Scripture, right? And we're swimming downstream just like everybody else. But we're like, but I got a verse that doesn't say what I say it says. We're just swimming downstream. There will be afflictions. There will be hardships. To have a heart for people, we anticipate that. And Paul says, you know what? This affliction that we're facing is the affliction that we've been told beforehand. Then look at verse 5. This is his fear. He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. You feel the intensity of his emotions? He's like, I spent time and effort, and I invested in these people. They're my glory and crown of boasting. I did what God called me to do, and then I was pulled away, and I had to leave. And they're in this cultural mess. They're in the river. How are they going to react? How are they going to swim? What are they going to do? And he's like, I'm concerned for them, and I need to find out. So he said he sent Timothy to learn about their faith for fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you 
and our labor would be in vain. The tempter, Satan, shows up twice in our verses today. He shows up hindering and he shows up tempting. The tempter is real and his primary weapon is subversive temptation from culture. Okay? The primary weapon that Satan uses right now is not like it's Halloween and there's a guy with a pitchfork and you got the ears and the tail and he's chasing people around. Satan's primary weapon is not some dream or some vision or some apocalyptic end time craziness. Okay? Satan's primary weapon right now is subversive. Temp- the, the temptation is, man, it would be so much easier to just kind of turn and swim in the same direction everybody else is swimming. The tempter has tempted. Here's what we learn from that, church, is that apostasy is always a possibility. Apostasy. That's not an Italian dish, okay? I came up with that in the first service, and I don't know, sometimes you but apostasy, turning from the Lord, turning away from the Lord. And what Paul's fear and his concern is, is that he invested spiritually in these people and that they had started off looking like they were Christ's. It looked like that they had accepted Christ and that they were people of faith. But when the pressure hit and the hardships and the difficulties came, as other scripture says, it revealed that their faith was not true faith. And he was fearful that his labor had been in vain. And we have to know that apostasy is always a possibility. It's amazing because we can read in verse 6 and following, and next week's sermon will be on the fact that they, they didn't. They stood firm in the faith. And that's what we want to be. But I want to leave you with that this morning, that as we invest in people, and as you have a heart for people as we await the Lord's return, there are going to be those times that are hard and difficult times. We could tell plenty of stories about those who turned away. But again, I hope God is laying people in your heart who need you to invest in them. Invite him over for dinner. Invite him out for a cup of coffee. Invite him to a Bible study. Invite him to a men's breakfast. Whatever it is, because we need each other. It's like this. If I'm swimming upstream all by myself, I'm going to get tired really quick. I'm going to get worn out, discouraged, and depressed really quick. But if I got a whole group of people around me and we're strengthening each other and working together and reading scripture together and doing life together, I'm going to be okay. And we're going to be okay. So let's swim upstream together, amen? If you're a Christian today, that's the challenge. If you're not a Christian today, the challenge is to accept Christ as your Savior. Turn and start swimming upstream. Love to chat with you more about that if, if you have questions or thoughts. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close in prayer this morning. And as we do that, again, a reminder that you can continue to interact with these ideas uh, through the sermon supplement. There are some on the back table there, um, as well as it's available in the app if you'd like that as well. I want to pray for us as we close this morning. God, again, thank you for meeting with us in your word. Thank you for teaching us. And Holy Spirit, thank you for conveying exactly what you want us to know. And as we open your word, as we read it and we study it and we see our lives, God, I I pray for some people in here today that there would be a sense of encouragement that although we're swimming upstream, although we're, we're trying to do what you've called us to do, that we don't have to do it by ourselves, that we could do it together. So I pray that there would be some encouragement and even encouragement that someone would identify someone else who they need to, to come alongside. God, I pray that there would be a challenge here, that as we leave, 
that you would continue to challenge us with your word, both to continue on our own to swim, but also continue to work together. God, give us a heart for people as we await your return. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.